0: This morning's passage is found in Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, and it can be found in your bulletin there. Starts, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are those quarrels among you. What I mean is this one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." Let me pray for Mark. Father, thank you for this passage and uh, for Mark leading us through it today. Um, Pray just for hearing of your word, that it would touch our hearts um, on this uh, topic of unity and identity in you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. We're excited today because we are beginning a new series. We had a great uh, four Sundays going through the book of Ruth uh, with four different speakers uh, taking uh, a chapter each. And uh, as we finished uh, delving a bit into the Old Testament, uh, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite New Testament books, the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we are going to be in this book, uh, think of Hebrews last year for a number of weeks, And uh, we will finish this up uh, at the end of July. Uh, Obviously, we're going to have breaks at Easter and uh, a couple uh, other things, but uh, uh, we're going to be covering uh, these chapters uh, of the book of 1 Corinthians with much practical teaching for a congregation, both in the first century and for us today. So we jump right in with the first chapter here. On the afternoon of November 19, 1863, a crowd had gathered at the cemetery on the battlefield at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, in the United States. They were there to commemorate the 3,000 dead who had fallen in a battle with the Confederate Army some four and a half months before. The Civil War between the northern and southern states had been waging for two years, mainly over the issue of slavery. There had been much loss of life on both sides over during this period of time, with brother fighting against brother in some cases. At Gettysburg on that day, the main speaker was an orator by the name of Edward Everett. Everett spoke for over two hours. His speech contained some 13,607 Words. So, if you think our sermons are long, uh, (laughs) in those days, speeches were really long. And Everett, on the platform that day, was followed by the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. As Lincoln got to the platform, he began his speech, which consisted of only 271 words, (laughs) In comparison, maybe this is a lesson for us as orators or speakers today. He delivered this speech in less than two minutes. And yet, it's one of the best-known speeches of American history. And students like myself were required to learn it as part of our history lessons in school. How many of you have learned the Gettysburg Address? Four score and seven years ago... Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. The first line of this speech. <laughs> I mean, the end of that line is still radical, but dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal. Here we are 250 years later and still struggling to put into place that principle of the equality of all humanity. In the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln made a profound observation about the United States, now split by civil war. And I quote him, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. This quotation that Lincoln used in his speech was not, of course, original to him. Lincoln knew his Bible, and he borrowed it from none other than Jesus Christ once when Jesus was accused by the scribes and Pharisees of driving out demons using Satan, the prince of demons, he responded, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand his end. Has come. Abraham Lincoln saw in this spiritual saying of Jesus an important principle of government that threatened the healing of a divided nation, the United States at that time, and the restoration of unity to a split people. The Apostle Paul likewise understood this principle as well. And this morning we'll examine his initial address to the Corinthians, as he sought to bring healing to their divided community. But first, we want to give you some background on the book of 1 Corinthians, as well as some introductory issues. Okay? So, the book of 1 Corinthians is written by Paul on his third journey from the city of Ephesus. If you remember in Acts 16, Paul is on his way to Ephesus to begin preaching there, but the Holy Spirit diverts him first to Macedonia and later down to the Roman province of Achaia, to Athens and to Corinth. This is a re- restoration of what Corinth would have looked like in the days of Paul in the mid first century. Where is Corinth? It's in this peninsula south of mainland Greece, called the Peloponnesus, the Peloponnesus here. Here is Ephesus over near Kushadesa in western Turkey. A direct voyage between the two would have taken four days in antiquity, a distance of roughly 406 kilometers. And you can see Corinth itself is not on the coast, it's inland there, and it's connected to two important ports, Lycaon to the north on the Corinthian Gulf and Kencria or Sencria on the Saronic Gulf on the Aegean Sea. We know a very famous woman from this eastern port by the name of Phoebe, who was a deaconess of the church at Sencria here, where Paul would have traveled back and forth from this port. Some of you have maybe visited this and see the canal that now cuts across this isthmus today between mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus. Ancient Corinth. What was distinctive about this city, and why was it an important center for Paul? Well, it was a capital of the Roman province of Achaia, and this province is mentioned ten times in the New Testament. So as you're reading through this and you run into this, you say, well... It's one of those geographical terms. I have no idea where it is, what it is. Well, it's the Roman province that Corinth was a part of. And Paul often addresses the Christians in this area. Athens was a part of this province as well. So there's probably other churches in this province besides just Athens and Corinth. It was a Roman colony followed by Caesar in 44 B.C. had a large population, 75 to 100,000 people. It was an important commercial center, as I mentioned. It had two ports uh, with it, so its strategic location as a political, economic, spiritual center made it an ideal center then for Paul to have a ministry, and for two and a half years he stayed there. It also had a Jewish community in this city as well, and Paul founds the church there sometime around 51 or 52 on his second journey. He revisits it on the third journey as well, but strategically here on the second journey when he founds the church. This is what the site looks like today. This is the uh, Acropolis uh, of the city looming uh, to the south. Some of you have visited the site, (laughs) wonderful archaeological site to visit sometime. We're going to do a a brief background again, looking at the stages here. This is the view from the Acropolis looking to the port of Lacayan to the north. This is the remains of the church at Sencria to the east uh, on the uh, Aegean Sea, on the uh, Saronic Gulf there. So spring, summer, 51 uh, of 53, we have here. News of Paul, arriving now in Ephesus, has reached the church in Corinth. You see this in Acts 19.1. Stage two, in the fall of that year, Paul writes to the Corinthians, telling them not to associate with immoral people. So we see a reference to this letter in 1 Corinthians 5.9. You can see the Temple of Apollo, the ruins there, uh, right in the city, and the, whoops, uh, the remains of a synagogue with these beautiful menorahs, a lintel that was in the synagogue in uh, Corinth. Spring of 55, and this is the Bema Street seat that Paul was brought in front of before the uh, Roman proconsul uh, there uh, when there was a controversy while he was in the city. We see messengers from Chloe arriving from... Corinth bring a report of quarrels in the Corinthian church, and this is what we're addressing here this morning. We're not quite sure if Chloe was from the Corinthian church or the Ephesian church, most probably she was a prominent businesswoman in in Ephesus. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus come from Corinth. They're mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16-17 with a letter that asks Paul questions. And later on in the middle of the book, we're going to be dealing with some of these questions. So these are commonly phrased now about, now about. So he's responding to their questions about certain issues. Sosthenes, our brother, and we learn of a Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 as well, who is beaten in front of this bima by some of the individuals, we're not sure if it's the same individual who was the former synagogue leader, but he is now with Paul in Ephesus, and he is named as the co-author of this letter. And he comes to Ephesus bringing more oral reports, and he's named, as I said, with Paul in the greeting. So this is Sosthenes, spring of 55. Now Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians in response to their oral reports of quarrels from Chloe's people, from the letter that's written, and from the report that Sosthenes brings him. So we have these three things then that spur Paul now to eventually write the letter that we'll be studying over the next few weeks. And this is carried to Ephesus by uh, someone named Sosthenes, or Sosthenes, as we've mentioned. And later on, we see from Ephesus, Paul is sending Timothy and Erastus to Corinth via Macedonia. And this is quite an important inscription that we see in uh, 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 Corinth today. Uh, You can see it in Latin, someone by the name of Erastus, who's the treasurer of the city. And some archaeologists and scholars uh, see the likelihood that this same Erastus here is the Erastus who's mentioned in the New Testament, also as a civic treasurer for the city of Corinth. So that's our brief background, okay? So now that you know where Corinth is, where it falls into the ministry of Paul, we can proceed with our look at First Corinthians chapter 1. In the first three verses, Paul writes, and I'll read these. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ, Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've read any other letters of Paul, all of his letters start very similarly. However, there's one thing in this greeting that's very unique. And that's the description of the Corinthians as a sanctified, that is a sanctified, a people made holy. We use this big theological word, sanctified, simply means someone who's been made holy In Christ Jesus, and thus they are called saints, holy people, sanctified to be made holy. And only one of Paul's other 13 letters does he use a similar greeting, and this is in the letter to the church in Rome, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So again, this catches our attention here, his unique use of. This language at the beginning. And because of sin, separation exists between humans and God. And Jesus Christ, through the shedding of blood on the cross, brought redemption for this sin. But as a result of this, sinners can now repent and they can be, uh, and through this, imputed or given, imparted the holiness of God through this redemptive process. We know that God's desire for holiness among His people is nothing new, is it? It goes clear back with Moses on Mount Sinai over 2,000 years ago. And he tells the people of Israel, you are to be my holy people. Later at a covenant renewal ceremony, God declared in Leviticus chapter 11, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. The Old Testament repeatedly emphasizes the holiness of God and his desire that his people resemble him in their moral character. So we see here that God's people are called to be saints, not because of what we do, but of who we are. We are a sanctified people. We've been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Note that Paul says it's not just the Corinthians who have the status of being saints, but all Christians everywhere, then and now, we are all saints. St. Saint Vic, St. Di, St. Dini, St. Enel, St. Andrew. <laughs> we can call each other saints if, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. One of those, the great truths of Scripture is we're not only a royal priesthood, but we are a holy people, we are a sainthood as well. Paul's declaration that the Corinthians are called saints here at the letter's opening is quite amazing. And why? (laughs) Because we're going to learn a little bit later as we go through this book that the behavior of these Corinthians is not exactly saint-like, is it? (laughs) Okay. They're not behaving like God's holy people. Which brings us to the idea that we could just say, well, they are sinners saved by grace. But I think this commonly used phrase is misstated. These Corinthians are saints who sometimes sin. And so isn't that our condition as well? We have been created in a new man, a new woman in Christ. Our nature has been changed fundamentally. That sin nature has been replaced now by the holiness of God. And so indeed, we are sanctified. We are saints. But yes, we occasionally still sin. And praise God, we still have that Redeemer, that blood that we can call upon to cleanse us from those sins. In verses 9 through 11, Paul goes on with a thanksgiving. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Literally, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what's the reason that Paul is giving thanks here? He rejoices that the Corinthians have been spiritually enriched, especially in the areas of speech, and knowledge. And he says this is particularly so in the area of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians lacked none. But again, these gifts we learn later here are causing problems for the Corinthians. And we're going to be looking in these chapters then of the advice that Paul gives them and various correctives on how to use these gifts in the context of the Corinthian house church meetings. But here in his thanksgiving, Paul affirms their potential as people filled with the Holy Spirit. Why has God enriched the Corinthians with so many spiritual blessings? He says they're to use them while they're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is his second coming. So the purpose of all the blessings that God gives us, including spiritual gifts, is to keep us faultless, keep us blameless, keep us a holy people, to preserve us as saints, to help us preserve then our holiness. The Corinthians then, us now, until the day of the Lord. Paul affirms that God is faithful But he wonders, are the Corinthians going to be faithful? Are they going to remain in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ? But isn't this the challenges of all communities of believers, even until today? Are we going to remain faithful as we wait here in Antalya and beyond for the return of Jesus Christ? We don't know when that's going to happen, our generation or a century or longer. It's been 2,000 years. But the challenge of being faithful as a holy people remains for us today. But I think an important takeaway that we see here is since Paul states that spiritual gifts are given and needed until Jesus returns, any belief that they have ceased simply does not make sense. And Paul is going to say more about the gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Of course, Paul, I'm going to give away when the perfect comes, (laughs) then we no longer need to prophesy. Well, the perfect ain't here yet, so we, we still need them. Now to our topic in our text, the problem of a house divided. We learned in the PowerPoint that representatives of Chloe's household, probably her slaves and her freedmen, have brought news to Paul in Ephesus that the Corinthian church is divided. And Paul begins here now by appealing to the Corinthians to agree with one another and have no divisions amongst the members there. He says, particularly there to be united in mind and purpose That is, their mindset and their determination together must be similar. They need to be on the same page spiritually as they are going forward. And we're uh, asked the question, what is the cause of their schisms? Now, this is the Greek word here. We bring it literally from Greek into English. For those of you who are not native English speakers, it's kind of difficult to say, say schism, but this is the Greek word here. Schisms, quarrels, and bickering have arisen over various personalities that have been in the congregation or maybe there even now. These persons have ministered among the Corinthians at various periods in the spiritual history of the church. So, what are people in the congregation saying? Some are saying, Well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Cephas. Well, They're using his Aramaic name so much as special status, they're not even using Peter, Petros, okay? So they're using that name. And of course, we've got another group that says, I follow Jesus, I follow Christ, okay? Perhaps they presume to be even more spiritual than the others by refusing to choose a personality. But by their superior attitude, they also are contributing to this problem of divisions, so what is happening in the church? Apparently, some Corinthians were boasting about who had baptized them, as again as if that gave them special status. And Paul tells us here, while he was in Corinth for only one and a half years, he had baptized only Crispus, Gaius, and then on second thought, he said, "Oh yeah, I think I remember I baptized the household of Stephanas." Okay, he's racking his memory here, trying to you know not leave out anyone. Now, it's important to recognize that Paul is not minimizing the significance of baptism, okay? I hope all of you have been baptized in water as part of your spiritual journey. If you haven't, see us after the service, and we would be happy to organize a baptismal service later this spring when the weather gets a little bit warmer and the water will be warmer in the baptistry, Water baptism is important. It's commanded in Scripture. But Paul is saying here that he was not sent to preach a gospel of baptism. He was sent to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're trying to pin him in a corner here that he does not want to be in. Now, Apollo... Apollos, of course, was this very learned guy who showed up in Ephesus while Paul was in Jerusalem. Paul had left Priscilla and Aquila there. They were fellow tent makers. They'd worked together in Corinth. They'd gone to Ephesus. As Paul went on to Jerusalem during that interim period, Apollos shows up from Alexandria, and all he knows is the baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila, they teach him the complete gospel of Jesus Christ. He becomes a believer and now becomes a very eloquent speaker trained in Alexandrian rhetoric rhetoric and philosophy. And God is now going to use this uh, for the proclamation of the gospel. And he leaves from Ephesus and goes to Corinth and undoubtedly has quite an important and impressive ministry among the church, um, uh, church members there. And we're going to read a little bit later, uh, in 1 uh, Corinthians, about Paul's perspective of laborers in the field and laborers in the vineyard that both he and Apollos were a part of. Now, we have no idea if Peter ever came to Corinth. Acts doesn't record any of that. Later on, it seems that on his way to Rome, most likely uh, where he suffered martyrdom, he probably visited the church at Corinth, but we have no record at this time, if Peter had ever been there. But of course, he's very well known from the gospel stories as probably the most, uh, the predominant of the 12 disciples, as the story of Jesus is told in the church in Corinth. To get their attention now, Paul uses sarcasm with this group of Corinthian believers. He makes his point by saying, was Christ divided? Was Paul divided? the one who was crucified for you? Were the Corinthians baptized in Paul's name? And of course the answer is no, of course. And he's wanting this resounding response from them. So when expressed this way, the Corinthian divisions begin to look silly, don't they? And Paul uses this exaggerated rhetoric to persuade the church, the Christians there, to abandon the divisions that had sprung up in their midst and to restore the unity in Jesus Christ. Because Paul knew that without this united witness, their witness in Corinth was going to be ineffective. Well, we may shake our heads at how wrong it was for the Corinthians to form cliques or groups or whatever within the church based around personalities and spiritual experiences. However, as we look back over church history, how often have Christians repeated this folly? Just think how we speak of Christian groups today. The Calvinists, the Lutherans, the Wesleyan Methodists, the Mennonites. All their denominations formed through the influence of a leader. I mean, that, that's our history, for better or worse. And we sometimes line ourselves up theologically around these different groups to find an identity rather than just in Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever been part of a church split of a divided congregation? Any of you? Uh, most of us, that's part of our spiritual history at some time or other. What do churches Divide over. One of the silliest things today is music. Traditional music, contemporary music, younger generation, older generation. Uh, it's a big problem, especially in North America. They worship wars, they call it. I mean, it's phenomenal, but it's reality. Instruments. Some churches, of course, struggle. Do you use instruments in churches? Do you not use Instruments. Are pianos and organs holy, but drums and guitars not? I mean, those were issues in those days that Robin was talking about, okay? <laughs> Churches divided over the type of instruments they used. Baptism still. Is infant baptism to be practiced, or is uh, adult baptism only, or can you be rebaptized? Again, issues that divide. Oh, here's a big one. Women can. We- <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> 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 Moving right now. <laughs> <laughs> Can women be ordained or not? Can women speak in the church or not? Well, we have obviously made a decision on the latter with women being allowed to speak here. So, whoever that next leader of this congregation is, is going to have to have a perspective that includes the ministry of women as far as the comfort level uh, in order to do that, okay? Spiritual gifts. We alluded to this early. Do we allow spiritual gifts or not in the congregation? Should we speak in tongues in a congregation? Do we allow there or do we forbid the speaking of tongues? I mean, again, all issues that divide churches, divide Christians rather than uniting them. What do all these things do? They distract us from fulfilling the Great Commission preaching the gospel and the cross of Christ with power. And again, this is Paul's point, the point of the house divided. As you all know, SPUC is going through a transition right now. We're in an interim period as the pastor search committee does its work to locate a new pastor and then for the congregation to call that individual. Over the next Several months, there's going to be 10 different speakers behind this lectern right here, each with a different manner of presentation. But their intention is going to be to present God's word to you for your spiritual strengthening, encouragement, and nourishment. Now, as humans, we're bound to have preferences regarding style. Some like Pepsi, some like Coke. Oh, (laughs) some don't like either okay we have our personalities we have our tastes our styles our preferences our colors what what do you wear you know what bright colors you know uh, we have those kind of things however we cannot allow those preferences those styles to allow us to become critical and to use our opinions about things especially in the church to allow us to form cliques to gossip And criticize others who have differing preferences, okay? So my plea to you as we go forward is to reject the Corinthian model of division and strive for unity here at St. Paul Union Church. And through this interim period, we want to emerge as a stronger and more spiritually mature congregation. And Robin and Dindy and I can already see this happening, and This past week, we were really encouraged in the Lord by a number of instances. Our Australian friends who are with us uh, this past Sunday sat me down in the garden before they left on uh, Wednesday, and they just wanted to say, you have a very special church here in Antalya. The spirit among the people, the encouragement we felt here, the love amongst you. We just want to tell you that this is a wonderful place and we could sense the spirit in a wonderful way. And then before she left on Wednesday, we had to talked to Renata about a couple of things. And Renata just said, and this is always good coming from Renata, I really enjoyed the service last Sunday. There's just such a wonderful sense in the congregation, a wonderful spirit there. And, and James and I were just so blessed to be a part of it. Uh, Now, that was very encouraging for me and for Robin to have Renata share that with us, because this has been their vision all along for what this congregation should be here in this community. Now, of course, the enemy would like to see division in the churches of Jesus Christ. This was the point of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they're trying to say that Satan was the one behind the miracles of Jesus So my prayer today is that we heed the reminder of Abraham Lincoln based on the words of Jesus. A house divided cannot stand. As we continue in one mind and one purpose here as a leadership team, as a church council, as a pastor search committee, and as a congregation going forward, Our mission of being a witness for the gospel here in Antalya will be realized. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much, Lord, for this encouragement from Paul, Lord, for unity, not only in the church in Corinth, but for unity here in Antalya at St. Paul Union Church. Lord, our desire is to be a house united, Lord, that we will stand in our witness for Jesus Christ We ask this in your name. Amen. God bless.